I don't think I've... I don't think I've uh, ever been in a place before where when it was announced I was a leaving, there was such a thunderous applause. <laughs> I am assigned uh, this chapel. It would have normally been on Friday, day after tomorrow but uh, we forgot in our planning that this coming weekend is a very important weekend with parents and homecoming. And so they have asked me to move it up from Friday to Wednesday, but uh, I want to guarantee you that uh, next week's chapel are gonna be off the charts. Uh, even if you have to be carried on a stretcher, be here, and uh, as uh, I think you will be uh, deeply moved by uh, the presentations of next week. I have uh, chosen to uh, speak to you this morning on uh, John Wesley and other cracked pots. Do not misread it. It is not John Wesley and other crackpots. <laughs> I am, of course, basing that topic on Paul's famous words from 2 Corinthians 4-7, where he says in the following words, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, but not from us. Or as it is rendered in the message, remember our message is not about ourselves. We're proclaiming Jesus Christ, the Master. All we are is messengers, errand runners for Jesus and for you. If you only look at us, you might well miss the brightness. We carry this precious message around in the unadorned clay pots of our ordinary lives. That's to prevent anyone from confusing God's incomparable power with us. So, especially next week, we are going to be looking back. We are going to be thinking about heritage and roots and the womb that birthed Asbury College. Now to be sure, there are times when it can be dangerous to look back. Do you remember what the angels said to Lot and to his wife and to their daughters 
when they were fleeing the city of Sodom. The angel said to them, flee for your lives. Do not look back. But nine verses later, verse 26, Lot's wife looked back. And you know what happened to her? She became a table fixture. Some of you didn't get that, did you? I mean, if you expect me to give you some humor and you make no response, you're wrong. So. I mean, that's a time not to look back. And we could bring in Paul's words here from Philippians chapter 3 when he said we, we need sometimes to forget those things that are behind us. And similarly, Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9, verse 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom. My adaptation of that would be something like this. No one who puts his hand to the steering wheel and looks back is fit for a driver's license. <laughs> but there are times when it is good to look back. A very few of you know that for some inexplicable reason, my favorite character in the book of Genesis is somebody who's really a marginal person. And if this person were not in the book of Genesis, Genesis would still be Genesis. I really like Hagar. And let me remind you what the angel said to her as she was fleeing the household of Abraham and Sarah. The angel of the Lord encountered her in the wilderness and asked her this, where have you come from and where are you going? Unfortunately, Hagar was able only to answer one of those two questions. But in John chapter 8, verse 14, picking up on the Hagar language of Genesis 16, intentionally or unintentionally, Jesus says this about himself, I know where I came from, and I know where I am going. I think that's a good question for Asbury College to think about. Where have we come from? And where are we going? So there is a time to look back. Are you aware that every time you receive the wafer and the wine, one thing you are doing is you are looking back.
you are looking back at a past that makes the present and the future meaningful and filled with potential. And so today, part of the past that we are going to look at is, as you can tell, John Wesley. Now, some of you might feel that chapel is not the appropriate place to talk about people who are not mentioned in the Bible. But I'm not so sure that John Wesley is not mentioned in the Bible. So hold your horses. I mean, he's at least mentioned indirectly in that great verse that we have been using when we've been talking about legacy, where the writer of Hebrew says that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Surely that great cloud of witnesses would include him and myriads of others. But I wonder if there isn't even a more explicit reference to him in Scripture. Listen to John chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. <laughs> Thank God I've got tenure. <laughs> just tell you the bare outlines of his life. As you can see, he was born in 1703, lived almost to the end of the century. I, I, I wonder how many people in the 18th century lived well into their upper 80s. He was born in the, the small town of Epworth, which is about 100 miles north of London. He was the 15th of 19 children. And kind of interestingly, on the side, his mother and father, Samuel and Susanna, uh, taught family planning courses. That's a joke. Fifteen of nineteen. God have mercy on their soul and on their wombs. So. He certainly he certainly wasn't an Abraham Lincoln look-alike, a, a big man. Uh, he was five foot three, and he weighed 126 pounds. I wonder if he had to run around in the shower just to get wet.
come to think of it, John could have become a jockey. But listen to some of the things that were accomplished in the last 65 years of his life. I have listed four. He traveled 250,000 miles, most of which were on horseback. I suspect many of us in this room have not traveled that much and may never travel that much. He preached over 40,000 sermons. If my math is correct, and please don't trust me on that, he would have to preach two sermons a day, seven days a week, for 65 years to do that. And finally, he, he has left behind uh, over 400 publications that he produced. But perhaps most importantly of all, uh, he left behind a legacy. Talking about legacy this semester, aren't we? He left behind a legacy that few, if any, in the body of Christ over the last two millennia has left before. Now, I don't know this morning whether Wesley is eavesdropping on chapel. But if he is, some people are, I think he would be a little uncomfortable and embarrassed that we are, that I am talking about him and how God used his life in the way he did. I say that because of one line that appears on the inscription on his gravestone. I've seen some interesting gravestones. Some of them are kind of interesting. Here's one. Here lies Johnny Yeast. Pardon me for not rising. <laughs> Here's an inscription I saw on the gravestone of a lawyer. The defense rests. Here's an inscription on a gravestone of an auctioneer, Jedida Goodwin, born 1828, going, going, gone, 1876. <laughs> Here's a gravestone inscription from somebody who did not particularly like the Lone Star State. I would rather be here than in Texas. What about this one? Beneath this stone, a lump of clay, 
lies Annabella Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. I think this is my favorite. A sailor. Here lies the body of John Round, lost at sea and never found. <laughs> then there is Wesley's inscription that would take me several minutes to read, but there is one line that leaps off. And it says this, reader, those of us who might be reading the gravestone, reader, if thou art constrained to bless the instrument, give God the glory. We do not worship Wesley. We do not worship Hughes. We do not worship Morrison. We do not worship Kindle, but we thank God for them and are grateful that their shadow has ever passed over our lives. Well, how do I know that, that Wesley has left behind a legacy that is almost unmatchable by any other? And, my own, and this is an area in which I am not an expert. There are people who have forgotten more about this here this morning than I have ever learned. But I think one of the reasons is that there isn't a segment or a part of the body of Christ. And that's a multi-piece pie that hasn't in some way looked to J.W., as a model, a source of inspiration. For example, evangelical Christians warm up to JW because of his passion and zeal to win the lost to Christ. Those whose agenda is more on the social gospel warm up to our guy Wesley because they knew that Wesley was a person who was most, most comfortable when he was living and working among the poor. I think what JW would really like, a mission organization that was birthed here at Asbury, some of you know it, the word made flesh. He committed himself to living a simple lifestyle. And I think John Silkowskis quoted one of his famous quotes earlier in chapel when he said, make all you can and save all you can so you can give away all you can. And thirdly, holiness Christians warm up to him because of his emphasis upon sanctification. Those Christians who would like to see all parts of the body of Christ united, 
warm up to Wesley as their model with his Catholic spirit. The fundamentalists, like Wesley, because he had a clearly defined package of essential doctrines. Traditionalists warm up to him because he believed in the institutional church and the major place the sacraments would play in it. And the charismatic tradition looks to Wesley because of his emphasis on the powerful and fresh outpouring of God's spirit and love upon his people. And so I wish to share with you something that I cannot establish or substantiate, but I want to put it in the form of a question. What do you think John Wesley would like about Asbury College? What would excite him about this place? To get the ball rolling, may I suggest four or five things? I think one thing that would excite him is our emphasis upon the fact that there is no essential point of conflict between getting the best education you can get and passionately loving Jesus in the process of doing that. Those are two things that are not incompatible. You don't have to choose between making your studies first or making your walk with Christ first. They can be together. And this Oxford-educated Don would stand in our midst this morning and say, I like, I like the fact that you guys here at Asbury have not let your great commitment to Jesus Christ put your studies on the back burner or your commitment to your studies put your passion for Christ on the back burner. I think he'd like that about us. I think the second thing he'd like about us is this. I think he'd really like the emphasis we place on holiness. And in conjunction with that, because I want to treat them together, I think he would appreciate the emphasis that we place on revival. Why do I put those two things together? Our emphasis on holiness and our emphasis on revival. I have wondered why. Let me just share with my, from my heart for a minute. To the best of my knowledge, to the best of my knowledge, 
I cannot think of a place. I cannot think of a place. In all of the last 2,000 years of Christian history, that God has showed up so frequently and so powerfully and so dramatically as he has in this very room that you and I are sitting in at this moment. I may be wrong, but I am unaware of a place where so often and so dramatically God has chosen to show up. Why here? Why here? We're not necessarily any more spiritual than any other Christian college. I don't think you guys are more committed to Jesus than Taylorites or Wheatonites. I don't. I think they're just as committed as you are. But I spoke to a student early in the summer from Azusa Pacific. And later in the summer to a student who was enrolled at Moody Bible Institute. How excited they were when they found out that I was from Asbury. They said, you know, we're always talking about your school on our campus. California, downtown Chicago. We keep hearing about what God is doing in your place. And we pray it will happen on our campus. Now let me give you what I believe the reason is why God has chosen to show up at this place as often and as dramatically as he has. Whether it was the 50s, the 70s, last fall, or Monday's chapel. Trust me on this one. Wherever there is an emphasis on holiness and revival, the presence and the glory of God are not very far away. God likes to come among people who cry out for his holiness to invade and transform their lives. And we keep on praying that God would come. We will never stop praying that God will come. And you know, God likes to be invited to come. He likes to be invited to come. And we've asked him, and he has come. I think, fourthly, Wesley would appreciate the emphasis we place on Asbury in getting as many of us and you as possible into small groups, accountability groups, discipleship groups. Listen to this. Listen to this, ladies and gentlemen. Are you aware this morning 
that God did something through JW. That to the best of my knowledge, to the best of my knowledge, he is not done through anybody else. And what is it? Simply this. God sustained that revival for over 50 years. We've had revivals that may last a chapel or two. Or several weeks or several months. But imagine a powerful move of God that is sustained and alive and burning for half of a century. How did that, how did that happen? One of the ways is that Wesley was wise enough. You know, he beat Asbury College to it. You have to get these people who've had a dramatic encounter with God, and then you have to get them into these little groups. He called them bands and other names. Well, we'd be accountable to each other. We would pray for each other, where we would confess our sins to each other. And so what our sister said in chapel on Monday was anticipated by J.W. back in the 1700s. And finally, I, I, I think he would appreciate how serious we take the Great Commission to not only be the recipients of God's blessing, but to be the instruments of God's blessing and so we sang a few moments ago, my gracious master and my God. Assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy name. I think I think Wesley would like Asbury College. He wouldn't like everything about us. I don't like everything about him. <laughs> and this is where I come to my title. John Wesley and other cracked pots. And I see my, my time is running and away and my notes are not. like every one of us here in the room this morning. Wesley was both saintly and flawed. We all have our cracks. Some of us try to do the best we can to hide those cracks so that you, our students, won't see them. For instance, and I'll just kind of cut to the chase on this and not say everything I was going to say. Are you aware that, that, that Wesley had great difficulty getting along with people who disagreed with him? I've never met anybody like that in my life. <coughs> so, 
you know the song, Rock of Angels, cleft for me, let me hide. That seems like my senior recital. My life ending. <laughs> the guy who wrote that had a kind of a funny name. His name was Augustus Toplady. Friends called him Bill. He was a contemporary Wesley. And he was a strong Calvinist. And Top Lady one day asked Wesley if he could dialogue with him, to which Wesley replied, I do not fight with chimney sweepers. He is too dirty a writer for me to meddle with. I should only foul my fingers. Well, it's charitable, isn't it? <laughs> he could be very rigid, inflexible and autocratic, cold, demanding. But perhaps most interesting of all is, is his inability to relate affectionately to women. He had at least two love relationships, both of which ended in sour grapes. That's John's brother, Charles. Okay. So. Eventually, he married a widow, some years older than himself, and it was at least after a while a very terrible. She would leave, she would come back. She would leave, she would come back. And on one occasion, Wesley wrote this note to his wife. Do you have it on the overhead? Now, this is not a, a note of reconciliation. He writes to her and says, do not any longer contend for mastery, for power, for money, or praise. Be content to be a private, insignificant person. <laughs> Known and loved by God and me. Attempt no more to abridge me of the liberty which I claim by the laws of God and man. Leave me to be governed by God and my own conscience. Then I shall govern you with gentle sway. Oh, get a life, J.W. <laughs> so... saintly but flawed. But I'll tell you some other cracked pots. One several centuries ago, one more close to our time. Martin Luther, the great father of the Reformation. What an impact and a shadow he has cast. And yet, are you aware that many times he not only enjoyed the spirit, but he enjoyed the spirits? Overly consuming his favorite German beer. And his anti-Semitic remarks would make Mal Gibson look like he's Jewish. 
Or here's a more recent one. I think Becky quoted uh, from uh, on Monday's chapel. Oswald Chambers. Saintly, no doubt. But flawed. Some cracks in the pot. I, I remember when I first read his now famous devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. I, I was so convicted, I wanted to write my own book. I was going to call it My Least for His Lowest. Okay. So, uh, Oswald Chambers died needlessly at the young age of 43 because he was too stubborn to listen to his wife. He was experiencing severe stomach cramps. His wife and others urged Chambers to seek out medical assistance. He refused and turned them off with the result that shortly thereafter, he died at the young age of 43 from complications of appendicitis. If he'd only listened. Think how many cracked pots there are in the scripture. If you could put up the quote from Frederick Bickner. I don't know if you know this name or not. But listen to this famous writer. Who could have predicted that God would choose not Esau, the honest and reliable, but Jacob, the trickster and heel? That he would put the finger on Noah, who hit the bottle, or on Moses, who was trying to beat the rat in Midian for braining a man in Egypt? And said if it weren't for the honor of the thing, he'd just as soon let Aaron go back and face the music. Or on the prophets, who were a ragged lot, mad as hatter, most of them. But I close with this. I found this little song by a writer by the name of Leonard Cohen. He's not a Christian. He is a fellow Canadian. That doesn't mean he's not a Christian. But back, I believe, in the early 90s, he wrote a song. I believe the title of which is simply called Anthem. And he has three lines with which I want to conclude this morning. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. We're all cracked pots. Vessels of clay. But that God chooses to use us in spite of those cracks is a marvel of his grace and his mercy. I'm finished. Bless you all. Go forth in the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.